Now, as you are no doubt uh, aware, the Christmas uh, time, the season, is fastly approaching. Uh, my kids tell me it's eight sleeps. Um, sleep countdown's a big thing in my household. Uh, it drives me crazy, but my kids love it. And uh, what I like to do, I guess, over the, the next eight sleeps, whenever I preach, um, is to consider some Christmas comparisons. Uh, there are numerous comparisons presented in the Bible's narrating of the Christmas story. And uh, these comparisons contain some pertinent lessons uh, for you and I as believers. And the first uh, comparison that we will consider this morning is the unbelief of Zacharias versus the belief of Mary. So that's where uh, we will be headed. Uh, But before we commence, uh, let's pray and uh, then we'll dive into this first Christmas comparison. So let's pray. Father God, uh, we humbly seek uh, your enabling grace. Uh, We need your help to comprehend your word. Uh, We need your help to be submissive to your word. We need your help to put your word into practice. In every way, we need your help. And we humbly ask that you would supply it uh, via the Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do Christians ever have doubts about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith? Do Christians have doubts? Now, have you ever had any doubts? Have you ever had trouble believing something that the Bible says is true? Have you ever doubted that the Bible's prescribed way is really the best way? Have you ever doubted prayer? Has spiritual doubt and unbelief ever plagued you? Perhaps there was a real faith crisis in your life where you felt like you were drowning in the seas of doubt and the waves of unbelief were relentlessly dragging you under. Or maybe the doubt and unbelief is more subtle and plays out in ways often not identified. Now, I would like to suggest that Christians can and do struggle with doubt and unbelief. Even the most spiritual and strong are not immune, as we see in our text. And I would like for us to consider a comparison between Zacharias and Mary and see what it has to teach you and I about unbelief versus belief. So firstly, let's consider Zacharias. With Zacharias, we meet surprising unbelief. Zacharias uh, was a priest. Uh, His wife was also of the priestly line, and they were very godly people. They loved the Lord. They lived for the Lord. They served the Lord. In verse 6, there's a glowing commendation. It says, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. What a wonderful description. Wouldn't you like that to be written of you? Now, this doesn't mean that they were perfect, but rather what it does mean is that their lives were characterized by obedience. They followed the Lord. They kept his commandments. If you wanted a real life illustration of faithfulness and godliness, you could look to them. And yet there was a dark, a dark cloud that overshadowed their life. And the author wants us to sense their sadness. Okay, that the mood of verse 7, it's somber. It's important that we allow ourselves to feel the disappointment and the distress. 
to, to feel the hurt and the heartache. Okay, this couple, they battled infertility. You know, like most couples, they desired children, but this blessing had been withheld. And what anguish this must have caused. An arrow straight through their hearts. They had tried and tried. They had prayed and prayed. And yet the door of the womb had remained locked. And now in their old age, all hope was gone. The maternal waters had dried up. Now, as I'm sure we can uh, sympathize, infertility uh, in any culture is crushing. But it was even worse in a Jewish culture. Because they mistakenly believed that infertility was God's judgment on sin. If you were experiencing this, it must be the Lord's chastening. You, you must have some secret, despicable sin. Hence, the Lord is punishing you in this way. So, so there is this strong stigma surrounding infertility. So poor Elizabeth, not only is she nursing this crushing burden, I can't have children. I can't give my husband a child. But then, then there's all these arrows of accusation fired at her. When, when she walks down the street, people snare, people snicker. Notice in verse 25, she describes this as her reproach amongst men. This was a trial of all trials. But it's important for us to understand, not only was this very unkind to Elizabeth and to other ladies who experienced infertility, but their theology was wrong. It's not true. Not all suffering, not all trials and troubles are necessarily a direct consequence of personal sin. Now our personal sin does have consequences and sometimes it includes suffering. Okay, that's a good incentive to not pursue sin. You don't get to choose the consequences. But it's important for us to understand that it's not a one-size-fits-all explanation. Because sometimes we suffer because of the wickedness of others. Sometimes we suffer for righteousness sake, for doing goods. We, we can suffer because of sin in general, okay? not personal sin. Okay? That's the original cause. It all flows out of sin. Other times God allows suffering in our lives to teach us something. Sometimes we can't learn the lesson in any other way except through suffering. Paul teaches that sometimes we suffer in order to prepare us to help someone else who suffers. And then there's other times when God allows us to suffer as a means to bring him glory. You know, most of the time we don't know the reason, and therefore we should be very careful to not reach the wrong conclusions about why something bad is happening in our lives, and we should be extra careful about making a judgment call about why something is happening in someone else's life. You know, in this particular situation, Elizabeth, she was barren for the glory of God. God was not punishing her, but rather he was planning a miracle that would get people ready for the coming Christ. And the best way to show that John, what was a special child, was to bring him from a barren womb. So Elizabeth was suffering because of the way that God wanted to be glorified through her life. 
And that's an important lesson for us to understand. There's multiple reasons for suffering. And it reminds us that when we do suffer, there's always a way to glorify God. And that needs to be our desire and what we strive toward even in the midst of the deepest and darkest places that we may have to walk through. How can I glorify God in this situation? You know, in this suffering in their lives, it teaches us another important lesson. You know, just because you love the Lord and serve Him faithfully, this does not mean you'll have a problem-free life. My friend, it's so important to understand this. Otherwise, you're going to get very discouraged and very disappointed. Following Jesus doesn't assure you smooth sailing. Jesus never promises that. It doesn't mean that the storms and even cyclones of life won't come your way. This is a very obvious lesson from Zacharias and Elizabeth. And there's another lesson that I like to highlight. This couple, they continued to serve the Lord despite their devastating disappointment. Isn't that a wonderful example for us? Even though that they battled this infertility, even though they endured this unjust shame and slander, even though the Lord never answered their prayers for decades, they continued to serve the Lord. Their faithfulness was not dependent on favorable circumstances. And I would argue that we are very susceptible to becoming adherents to the prosperity gospel in this way. This is what I mean. We will serve the Lord when things are going well for us. Okay, we view it like a transaction. Okay, the Lord has done this for me, so that means I better do this for him. But please understand that if you serve God for what you can get, you're not serving God, you're serving yourself. And hence, it's an important test. Will we continue to serve the Lord? Will we love and serve Him even when things don't go to plan? Will we serve God faithfully even through the, the devastating disappointments and heartache of life? Okay, let's get it really pointed. Okay, when, when there's no child, or when there's no husband or wife, when there's no dream job, when you don't get the house, when you lose your health, when you don't have money, will God mean more to us than all of those things that we want to receive from him? God certainly meant more to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Could that be said of you? And could that be said of me? Now, what we have recorded in these opening verses is really a glowing report card. Here's a couple who loved the Lord, who lived their lives for Him, who had a wonderful testimony. They continue to be faithful despite the great personal difficulties and disappointments. It's an example worth imitating. And yet, even this mature and godly saint, even this great man, Zacharias, he has a moment of surprising unbelief. We, we don't expect it from a spiritual giant with such an impressive track record of faithfulness. 
And what makes this unbelief even more surprising is what he's doing at the moment of his unbelief. Okay, we read that he was a priest, and at this particular time he was on duty in the temple, and he's actually performing a once-in-a-lifetime task. And yet it's at this moment, okay, he's in the temple, he's offering incense to the Lord, and he's riddled with unbelief. You know, in Israel at this time, there were thousands of priests. After the return from Babylon, they had reinstituted uh, the, the priestly order established by King David. So there were 24 divisions, and each division were on temple duty for two one-week blocks throughout the year, and all the priests would be on duty for the major festivals such as Passover. Now, each day, the varying duties would be decided by lots. And there were some highly privileged tasks, and burning incense was one such task. Now, a priest would only get to burn the incense once in his life. Okay, once, that's it. And here we have Zacharias, he's an old man, and finally he gets his opportunity to burn the incense. He had waited for this. And now this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is a monumental moment, a career highlight. But what's ironic is that it was at this moment that unbelief flooded his heart. And this reminds us that unbelief can strike anyone, anywhere, at any time. But what was the particular doubt? Well, as Zacharias was offering the incense in the holy place, uh, he had the living daylight scared out of him. You know, have you ever been somewhere, whether it's at work or even a church or at home, and you think you're by yourself, and then you run into someone, okay? It frightens you. Now, imagine that situation, but you run into an angel, okay? That, that would be incredibly frightening. That's what this poor old priest experienced. And it's important for us to remember that God has been silent for over 400 years. There has been no prophecy since the close of Malachi. But now the divine silence is shattered. This is a significant moment. But the poor old priest is riddled with fear. It's probably a divine miracle. He didn't have a heart attack. And hence the angel moves quickly to alleviate his trepidation. Verse 13 the angel says, fear not, Zacharias. And then the angel goes on to give the old priest some very good news. Okay, verse 13, you and your wife are going to be parents. That this is what they had longed to hear for years. The barren womb is going to be brought to life. And this will not be just an ordinary child. As was God's practice throughout history, significant figures were often conceived in highly unlikely situations. Okay, this is God's way of drawing our attention to them, shining the spotlight on them. Think of Isaac, think of Samson. And this child here, John the Baptist, would have a vital role to play, and his significance is seen in verses 14 through to 17. Okay, he's going to take the, the Levite vow, and we see his role, especially in verse 17. He is the prophesied forerunner of Messiah from Malachi's prophecy. Okay, this is the one the prophet spoke about. 
And what that meant is Messiah was very close. So this is wonderful news. Now spare a thought for this priest. This is a lot to process. This would have been completely unexpected. As the angel says in verse 13, he says, thy prayer is heard. Now we can't be certain what Zacharias was praying for as the incense was offered. It could be that he was praying for his child directly. Maybe Elizabeth reminded him, you know, dear, when you go to work today and you burn the incense, make sure you offer our request. We've been praying for years. Maybe this will be the day. It could be that. Or it could be that he was praying for the deliverer of Israel, praying for Messiah. And that time had arrived and this also had personal implications. Either way, verse 13 does link the prayers that he offered with the miraculous birth of his son. But here's the ultimate irony. Zacharias had prayed and prayed and prayed for this. Many tears had been shed. And yet there was seemingly decades of silence. And yet now he's informed, Zacharias, your prayer will be answered. You're going to have a son. But this priest, this spiritual giant, as he burns the incense, he doesn't believe that his prayer could be answered. The prayer that he's prayed hundreds of times, it's going to be answered, but but he doesn't believe. Unbelief comes oozing out like a seeping wound. And in verse 18, Zacharias responds, and you know, here's my summary, you know, angel, I, I don't mean to be rude, but look at me. He says, I am an old man. Look at my wrinkles. My my wife's womb is drier than the desert. There, There must be some kind of mistake. This can't be. I need a sign. And the angel wasn't uh, too thrilled about that request. And he issues a a stinging rebuke. And this rebuke proves Zacharias' unbelief. And the angel really throws down the gauntlets. Zacharias, you want a sign? Well, here it is. You say, I am an old man. I say, I am Gabriel. Do you know who I am? I am the one who stands in the presence of God. I'm speaking God's word to you, and you should believe it. Okay, that's what it boiled down to. Zacharias did not believe God's word. He doubted God's promises. He did not believe in the supernatural power of God. And his unbelief resulted in divine chastening. And really, there's a dreadful irony. The punishment was that he couldn't speak until the child was born. Think about that. Think how horrible that would have been. Now he knows that this most wonderful news is true. He and his wife are going to have a son. It's going to be the forerunner to Messiah. This is great news. And he couldn't tell a soul. He couldn't even talk to his wife about it. They had this moment of great joy and he can't speak very sad but God in his grace still honored his word verse 24 Elizabeth did miraculously conceive despite the unbelief of her husband but I want you to see that here's Zacharias here's a holy man of God he's an illustration of righteous living someone who loved the Lord someone who had given his life to serving the Lord 
someone who had remained faithful despite great personal devastation, one who's entrusted with this most sacred task, and yet he's struck with unbelief. He failed to believe that God could answer his prayer. He didn't believe God's word. Unbelief had taken hold of him and had him firmly in its, in its choking grip. Now, this is surprising unbelief. It comes from an unlikely source in an unlikely place. Let's now consider the comparison. Consider Mary, where we see staggering belief. You know, I do think we tend to often miss how astonishing Mary is. And I believe that this is due to a common problem in churches. When we are aware of an error, in order to avoid that error, we we tend to run the other way and go so far away from it. The Roman Catholic Church elevates Mary to a place and position that she does not belong. They hold numerous heretical views around Mary, man-made fallacies that ought to be strongly rejected. And yet for us, in avoiding this error, we must be careful to not discredit and dismiss Mary because she's an incredible woman. Think about this. Billions of women have lived on planet Earth, but only one was chosen to be the mother of Jesus. Surely that says something about her character. Obviously, God the Father was going to be quite selective in who he chose to be the mother of Jesus. So the fact that she was chosen and how she responds to this revelation speaks volumes about her character. And as we will soon see, there have not been too many in the whole history of of Israel who have had faith like Mary. And yet the choice of Mary is quite surprising, humanly speaking, because there were not too many people lower than Mary. She was a Jew living under Roman oppression. She was a lady in a society that didn't esteem ladies. She was poor. She was lowly. She was not the child of a king. She was not the child of the high priest. She was not educated or influential. She was young. Just an ordinary girl from an ordinary home in an ordinary town. And yet the Lord chose her to be the mother of Messiah. And and this is classic Yahweh choosing the most unlikely vessel to undertake the most important task. Because our God loves to use the low and the humble. My friend, if you would like to be used by the Lord, ensure that humility is a quality that characterizes you. God will use the humble, not the proud. Now, I'd like us to engage our sanctified imagination, and we're going to pretend that we're Mary. Okay, so try and engage your imagination. You are a normal, lower-class girl. You're betrothed to Joseph. You're waiting for him to return after building the house, and you will get married. You are preparing for a normal run-of-the-mill life. But then out of nowhere, something completely unexpected happens. There's an angelic visitation, and the most unexpected news is announced. You know, Gabrielle informs Mary that she is highly favored, that the Lord is with her, that she was blessed among women. And Mary's trying to process all of this, 
And it's evident that this salutation was somewhat perplexing. Okay, you know, Mr. Angel, what, what does this mean? I'm a young, unknown lady from Nazareth. Well, what does it mean that I'm blessed and I'm favored? And then the angel shares the message that changes Mary's life forever. Verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now, now again, try and imagine receiving that announcement. How do you process it? Okay, first of all, she's informed that Messiah was coming, that the Savior is coming. That's great news. But furthermore, she's going to be his mother. Okay, that's a massive news item. That's a lot to process. But here's the astonishing thing. She doesn't doubt it. She doesn't dismiss it. She merely seeks clarification. In verse 34, she asks, how shall this be? seeing I know not a man. Okay, this is a good question. Understand this is not coming from a place of unbelief. Mary here is not riddled with skepticism, but rather this is a question about the execution of the announcement she has just heard. Mr. Angel, how could this happen? I don't know a man. I, I'm a virgin. You know, you understand how biology works. How can I become a mom when I don't know a man? Uh, again, this is not unbelief. How can I say that? Well, the angel answers the question without rebuke, and he even gives her a confirmation sign, even though she didn't request it. And verse 35 answers her question, and it describes for us the doctrine of the virgin conception. Mary would fall pregnant without the involvements of a man. Understand that this is supernatural. The Holy Spirit would overcome her. Now, that does not mean that God had sexual relations with Mary. That's a gross misconception. But rather, this is creation language. If you remember back to Genesis 1, the Spirit hovered over the waters. Here, he hovers over Mary. And she supernaturally conceives. And I'm not sure you and I can fully fathom the weight of this announcement for Mary. Imagine being told these things. If she struggled to believe, I think we could sympathize with her. And yet there doesn't seem to be an ounce of unbelief. Sure, there's an awful lot for her to process. It's highly unlikely that she comprehended it all, yet there was no doubt. There's no unbelief, but the exact opposite was forthcoming. I want you to notice verse 38. Okay, this is an amazing response. She's just been informed that she will fall pregnant but remain a virgin. She's just been told that the one who will be in her womb is God, and she will give birth to the long-awaited Savior. That's a lot to process. What's her response? She believes it. She believes it. That, that's astonishing faith. She says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy words. Wow. What an impressive response. She says, I, I submit to the Lord. Whatever he wants to do with me, that's okay. Whatever he says, I believe it. I trust him. 
I know that nothing is too hard for him. Sure, I don't fully understand it, but I believe. Mary believed. She had great faith. And rarely has there been such great faith in all the history of Israel. Think about some of the greats in Israel's history. She didn't try and offer excuses like Moses. She didn't say like Jeremiah, whoa, I'm way too young for this. She doesn't ask for signs or fleeces like Gideon. She doesn't laugh mockingly like Sarah, but she believes. God, if this is what you say, I believe it. Even if it seems impossible, even if others think it's laughable, I believe you will do it. That, my friend, is an amazing reaction. That's what we could call a faith reaction. Stunning belief even when unbelief is almost expected. And what makes this even more astonishing is that Mary believed and she submitted despite knowing this could potentially cost her everything. She had to be willing to give up Joseph. She didn't know how Joseph would respond. She didn't know how her family could react. They could potentially disown her. Then there would be all the scorn and the ridicule that would inevitably flow from society. Her reputation was going to be ruined. Imagine the gossip and the rumor that would have circulated. Okay, she didn't plan for this. Okay, she had to be willing to put aside her life plans. And this would result in a lot of suffering for her, although she didn't understand it all at this point. And yet, despite, sorry, despite all of this, despite everything that she could potentially lose, she trusted the Lord. She willingly submitted to his will for her life. That is a wonderful response. And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, I want you to understand that what Mary did, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be his disciple. It's to submit our lives to him completely. Whatever he wants us to do, be willing to do it. Be willing to give up everything for him. And yet, so many Christians do not live like that. So many Christians, particularly in the West, particularly in Australia, particularly in Sydney, live for self. And we can be completely unwilling to give up anything for Jesus. Not, not willing to submit to his plans for our life. Lord, I've got my own plans. I just want your stamp of approval. You know, we need to consider this uh, example before us. It certainly provides challenge are we willing to submit to god's plans are we willing to submit to god's word even if it's uncomfortable even if it means we're going to miss out on something even if it means we're going to have to sacrifice would you give up a career for jesus would you stay single for jesus and and not get married would you give up money for Jesus? Would you give up your lifestyle for Jesus? Would you give up your dreams for Jesus? Are you willing to lay everything on the altar for Jesus? That's what it means to be a follower of him. Now, as, as I'm talking, 
often we view this type of life as, you know, well, Brandon, that's just radical Christianity. That's just for the elite. That's just for those missionaries that, that go over to Africa. That's not normal Christianity, okay? And that's where you're wrong. Normal Christianity is radical commitment to Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, committed to Him. And I wonder if that's missing in your life, this commitments, this willingness to obey God's words, this willingness to surrender to his will, this willingness to give up all control of your life, a willingness to give yourself to the Lord completely. My friend, that's normal discipleship. And that should be obvious in your life and in mine. The question we need to ask ourselves, is it obvious? Is it happening? Now, you ought not to need a name tag to identify you as a disciple of Jesus. Your radical commitment ought to be obvious, just like Mary. Is that the case for you? So here... Luke presents us with a comparison. And it's here where I'd like to draw it all together. Okay, we have Zacharias the priest, the aged saint who served the Lord faithfully his entire life, the one who's entrusted with the precious privilege of burning the incense, and he's riddled with unbelief. He doubts and dismisses the announcement of the angel. And then there's Mary, this young nobody from the middle of nowhere, poor and lowly, and yet she believes the angelic announcement. She trusts God's word and believes that he is able to do what he says. Belief versus unbelief, this is the comparison. And now it's time to allow the lights of the scriptures to shine into the deepest and darkest corners of our inner being, to allow the word of God through the spirit of God to determine if there's any unbelief and doubt within us, whether it's obvious or whether it's subtle, is there doubt and unbelief lurking in our lives? You know, are you doubting and questioning something that God has said about the gospel or about his person, his plans or his purposes? Or perhaps you're doubting his way of doing things or, or you're questioning his demands. Do you doubt the power of prayer? Is there any unbelief lurking in your hearts? Now, perhaps this morning you have the most serious doubts about God's. If we were to use cyclone categories, this is category five. It doesn't get any more serious. You either doubt or don't believe that God exists. And you certainly don't believe what we call the gospel. You don't believe that you're a sinner by nature and choice, that you're an enemy of God, that you're separated from him on your way to hell. And that the only way to deal with this is by repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, believing that he is God and that he died, was buried and rose again for, for your sin. You don't believe that. You, you find that outrageous. My friend, that's the most serious unbelief. And it has dire consequences. It has eternal consequences. And hence, I implore you, come to Christ in faith. Embrace him as your savior. But this is not the only kind of unbelief and doubt. 
for the Christians here this morning, we can struggle with this. Remember Zacharias, a priest, a godly man, in the middle of worshipping God, and yet he's plagued with unbelief. That's how sneaky and subtle it can be. You can be at church worshipping God, and yet you're struggling with unbelief. But please understand that if you have doubts, if you struggle with unbelief, that's not abnormal. And I wonder if there are some particular doubts that are having a crippling impact on your spiritual life. Do you have doubts about the character of God? Is God really good? Because it doesn't seem like it in my life. Does God really love me? Is God really in control of this world? Is he really in control of my life? Is he really wise? Because there's some things unfolding in this world and in my life that doesn't make sense. Are you doubting the character of God? Do you doubt prayer? I have prayed and prayed and prayed. It hasn't been answered, so I give up. God doesn't answer my prayers. Do you struggle to trust God because you don't have a spouse or you don't have children or you don't have the job, you didn't get the house, whatever it may be, you fill in the blank for your situation? Or do you have doubts about God's plans and purposes in general? You doubt God's plan for marriage. Who cares if it isn't male or female? Well, why does it have to be monogamous? Why does sex have to be just in marriage? Or or what about parenting? You know, why should I discipline my children? That's so old-fashioned. That's outdated. We know better today. Church? Really? Why would I go to church? Those people just weigh me down, cause me grief. Forgive others? Are you for real? I'm not forgiving other people. Or who cares if I go to church and ignore people? Doesn't matter. You know, there could be a thousand other things. We doubt the ways of God as revealed in the Bible. Or do we doubt the ability of God? Can he really save me? Has he really forgiven me? Can he really restore my broken relationship? Can he really save that person? Can he really fix that major issue? Can can God really work through the preaching of Brendan? Is nothing really impossible with God? Maybe that's the doubt you have. Or do you doubt the promises of God? Will he really provide my needs? Is he really with me like he promised? Will he really never forsake me? Will he keep me saved? Will he really come back? Or do we have doubts about God's moral demands? What kind of rules are they? Who who, who is he to make such demands? Who who cares? They're so old. They're so outdated. Do they really matter? There are so many ways that we can doubt and be riddled with unbelief. It can lurk within us in very obvious ways and very subtle ways. You know, are there areas of doubt and unbelief in your life? If so, what should we do about it? How do we go about resolving it? Okay, well, here are five steps to help us overcome the doubts, fears, and unbeliefs that can lurk in our hearts as Christians. Okay, this is designed to help you, but it's also designed to equip you to help others okay, who have these struggles. Okay, five A's. I tried to alliterate it to help you. Number one, you know, ascertain it. Ascertain it. Okay, where it starts is by realizing that there is doubt and unbelief in your hearts. 
And sometimes it can be subtle and sneaky. Sometimes it's hard to detect. And hence it's important to ask the Lord regularly, Lord, please reveal to me, is there any unbelief? Is there any doubts in my heart? I want to deal with it. I don't want it to be there. You know, and often a telltale sign that we're struggling with this is when we're refusing to submit to the Lord and obey his word. Okay, when we're struggling to obey, okay, that's a common symptom of underlying doubt and unbelief. Okay, but we need to ascertain that it's present in our lives. Number two, we need to admit it. Admit it. We must be willing to admit that we have struggles with doubt and unbelief. And often that's hard. Have you ever thought like this? I'm a Christian. This should not be happening. I should not be having these doubts. What's wrong with me? And what will people think if I tell them? Okay, they're going to think I'm, you know, some kind of Christian loser. And I don't want that. So what do we do? We bury it. We bury it like a dog does the bone and we pretend it isn't there. My friend, remember Zacharias. Zacharias is a godly and spiritual man and yet he possessed unbelief. Okay, this is not uncommon. And it's crucial that you admit it. If you won't acknowledge it to the Lord and to others, it will never be overcome. And when we admit this to the Lord, okay, this is the most important thing. We need to admit it to the Lord. Usually it's going to include repentance. I can't think of too many exceptions because unbelief is a sin. We need to understand that and it must be dealt with like all sin. Number three, we need to assess it. Assess it. What I mean by that is, why do I have these doubts and unbeliefs? Okay, first of all, question them. Are they rational or not? Sometimes our doubts and unbeliefs are, are really silly. They're completely irrational. Ask ourselves, what is the cause? What circumstances or situations have contributed to it? You know, do I have doubts because I'm trying to excuse a sinful lifestyle? Often that's the case. We want this sin, so we, we have to doubt something in order to be in that sin, to appease our own conscience. Or sometimes... We have experienced something traumatic in our life, and that causes doubt. Are there unresolved issues in my life? You know, are there personal relationships unresolved? Is there anger or bitterness toward God for something? Okay, what are the underlying factors? Okay, there are always contributing factors, and identifying them is important for overcoming doubt and unbelief. Number four is assistance. Okay, get help. Talk to somebody about it. Be honest. Be willing to listen to, lot, to wise counsel, even if you don't really want to hear what they're trying to tell you. And this is where the church is vital. Okay, this is one of the reasons why we need the church, because we need to help each other. Because when it comes to doubt and unbelief, we can convince ourselves of all kinds of things that simply aren't true. And hence, we need help from others. Other people can provide clarity, balanced views. They can pray for you, identify things that you can't see, help with accountability, and so forth. Getting wise and godly assistance is vital. But the most important assistance when it comes to dealing with this is help from God. We need the grace of God through the Spirit of God to enable us to overcome doubt and unbelief. Okay, we can't do it by ourselves. Okay, this is the message of the gospel. We desperately need God's help. God has to save us. And we need God's help in our sanctification. 
to overcome doubt and unbelief. If we seek God's help, he will graciously provide it. And then number five is alternatives. Alternatives. Our unbelief and doubt, it needs to be removed. But it requires more. It needs to be replaced. Notice how the Apostle Paul always writes, okay, put off, put on. It's never just put off. Okay, put off, put on. Okay, what do we need to put on? Well, in most cases, I think very few exceptions, our unbelief is rooted in wrong views of God. Okay, our unbelief is rooted in wrong views of God. Zacharias doubted because he didn't believe God was all-powerful at that moment. That's a false view of God. And this is always part of the remedy. We need right beliefs about God. Believe what the Bible says about God. God, that's the medicine to fight the disease of unbelief. And my friend, this is why knowing God is the most important thing in life. This is why knowing God needs to be the pursuit of your life. How do we get to know God? We get to know him by studying the scriptures, being in the word constantly, by communing with him in prayer, by walking with him, by coming to church and participating in the common means of grace. This is how we correct false views and perceptions about God. And that is the antidote to doubt and unbelief. It's knowing your God and it's trusting him. And this brings to an end the first comparison. And by God's grace, may we have the surprising belief of Mary and not the shocking unbelief of Zacharias.